What's going on, guys? Welcome to the Creating Wealth Podcast, where I, Kyle, from Kyle Curtin Real Estate, interview local top dogs in the real estate investing, wealth building, and personal finance industries. Let's build together. Welcome to episode seven of the podcast. Today, I am interviewing Carson Hess. He is a super interesting real estate entrepreneur doing really great things. He is a co-founder of a really cool up-and-coming real estate tech software company called Development AI, as well as a house hacker with a single-family property in Malden, Mass. There is a ridiculous amount of value across a few different really important topics in this episode, and I hope you enjoy. Let's jump right into the episode. What's going on, guys? Welcome to episode seven of the Creating Wealth podcast. Today, I get the great pleasure of interviewing Carson Hess. Uh, he's doing a ton of stuff. He is a uh, co-founder of a tech real estate company called Development AI. There's nothing else like it. It's truly insane. You know, wait till you get to hear about it. And he's also house hacking a single family in Malden. I yeah, Malden. I'm sorry. <laughs> and um, you know, he's just doing a ton of stuff. And it's this is definitely going to be a really good interview. I, I'm pumped. You know, to have him on. Carson, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Kyle. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you. <laughs> but to start things off, man, what got you into real estate and what is kind of your backstory? Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up around real estate to some extent. My mother was an agent and then broker when I was growing up in New Jersey um, from the time that I was about a freshman in high school until they moved away about halfway through college. And, um, you know, even though that my family was in real estate for a little bit, I didn't really catch the bug, so to speak, until I started looking at it through the lens of an investor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because as you know, I mean, as an agent, the experience of a retail real estate agent is very different from, say, the investing landscape. You know, typically in the more retail setting, you're looking for more um, houses that are finished, whereas within investors, you're looking for things that are more uh, value add. You know, you need <laughs> a little, little bit of elbow grease to uh, increase the value of those things. Um, and so from that perspective, I didn't really even understand what real estate investing was until um, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I read that when I was about 19, you know, just delivering pizzas in my hometown during the summer in between um, college summers. And uh, it was from that perspective, or it was during that time and from reading that book that I really understood that I wanted to be a full-time, you know, entrepreneur in the real estate space in some capacity. Um, through reading that book, I obviously thought that it was going to be through real estate investing. Mm-hmm. Had no idea that it would come through the form of a tech company. But, um, you know, during that time, I was going to school for mechanical engineering and didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do, but um, knew that I needed to get some sort of salary job just to try and make ends meet. Um, but, you know, I was kind of hedging my bets against between that and then also just trying to find some way to become a full time entrepreneur in the real estate space during that time as well. So while I was going to school for mechanical engineering, my senior year, I actually also got licensed as an agent myself. The idea being that, you know, I'd be able to understand more about the market and understand more about how real estate work gets to grow my network a little bit, understand the process um, through the lens of an agent. And then as I was making money, transition that into more of the uh, investor profession. Um, but, you know, in my experiences as an agent, it kind of taught me that, you know, I didn't really like being an agent. <laughs> I, um, it's, it's very different from being an investor, being mm-hmm. on that side of the fence. And I think also, I just didn't really necessarily have the professional skills that were required to be a successful agent at the time. Um, it's hard, right? You have to know how to negotiate. You have to have really good people skills. 
Yeah. And you also have to be able to speak the language and that takes some time to understand how to do. And so I let my agency license lapse. And then by the time that I graduated um, in the summer of 2017, I took a job out in Denver, Colorado, working in construction management on electrified light rail systems. Um, so I worked there for about eight months, then got shipped out to Boston to work on a different project. Worked on that project for about two years or so. And, um, you know, which brings us more, more or less to today. But, you know, I left my full-time job in middle of May, 2018, or not 2018, 2020, mm -hmm. and have been working with Development AI ever since. Um, not sure how far we want to go into like the backstory of founding that, but um, you know, yeah, we we definitely can, man. I okay, that's awesome. I uh, we we have a pretty similar story, and like it, it's so crazy, like to meet another person that's like super young as well, and you know, rich dad, poor dad, kind of started everything, and. I totally get what you're saying about the agent thing. Like, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. A hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of in the same boat, but yeah, yeah. If, um, you know, if you could, you know, kind of tell the story of development AI, you know, what it is, um, you know, kind of how you started that and how it came to be. And yeah. Yeah. I think the story of development AI really starts, you know, for me anyways, it starts around March 2019, which was when I invested as a limited partner in a ground up development project in Chelsea. Um, and it was through that project that I got to meet the first developer that we actually brought the, the tool to, um, the prototype of development AI at the time. Um, so between March 2019 and September 2019, I was pretty much just still saving money. And it was in September 2019 that I closed my first property, the, the property in Malden. And about a month later, I had met my now business partner named Kevin who was at the time working on a tool that would basically show you what could be built and where. Mm -hmm. um, so that takes some, some understanding of what zoning maps are and what zoning regulations are. And, you know, basically if you have an address, like what can you actually build on it? Can you build a bakery? Can you build a, a multifamily dwelling? Can you build a industrial warehouse? Um, that really comes down to the zoning code. And so what the goal of the tool was at the time was to try and understand what could be built on any particular parcel. And basically when I met him at a meetup, um, my response was basically just like, that's one of the coolest things I've ever heard in my life. And how do I, how do I help you? Um, and so between about October, when we met 2019 and January, 2020, um, we were just meeting with a couple of different developers. The first one that we met with was the one that I, whose project I invested in. And it was from that that we kind of understood that we were really onto something. And, you know, since then, I've just been talking with developers nonstop. I mean, from January 2020 to March 2020, when my, when my business partner left his full-time job, um, we were just meeting with developers nonstop. And it was because of that that we understood that, like, there was real value here. And um, we were making sales of the software on pretty much day one from the day that we incorporated back in April. And then flash forward about a month and a half later, I left my full-time job as well and have been, been in it ever since. That's so crazy. Oh my God. There's, you're right. There's really nothing else like that. And you know, that's, that sounds like it's totally, um, you know, something brand new to the landscape. And, you know, I think you guys have something really, really crazy that you have. And, you know, that's, that's just super cool. You know, especially how like you and your business partner, you know, took the leap, you know, to get out of your full-time jobs and, and jump right into this. And it's, it's working out awesome. And I love to hear it, man. That's great. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And it was definitely kind of crazy how it all unfolded. I mean, my business partner left his job like 
pretty much the day that COVID really started becoming a, a serious thing in the United States. Mm-hmm. And it was something that was totally unanticipated. And obviously, I mean, nobody was expecting this. Um, and from that perspective, we almost thought that we were like making a huge mistake. But, um, you know, I think that the real estate market has been very resilient to this. You know, certainly certain sectors have taken massive hits, like, um, you know, the luxury residential markets in these sort of gateway markets like New York City and Boston. I mean, obviously, the, the Class A apartments there are taking quite a big hit. But yeah. You know, there's other sectors like industrial or like, um, you know, suburban development that's really been held up extraordinarily well. So I think that it, sh- it showed that resili- real estate is resilient in certain areas. And then there's other areas that, you know, the operators and developers and um, investors in those spaces are going to have to find some way to, to make it better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point, man. That's, that's a super good point. You know, when it comes to kind of like who benefits and you know, who's, who's kind of like fit, I guess you could say for these kind of, you know, unexpected events that happen. And that's, that's a really good point. Yeah. And I think in some sense too, I mean, we're still kind of at the beginning of this because Mm -hmm. that's the other thing that's so hard to gauge what it is exactly that's happening with the real estate market right now is the fact that real estate is such an illiquid asset. Um, And the people that are, I mean, you look at, at what constitutes the income stream of, for example, multifamily operators, and it's, obviously tenants, right? So like what's going on with their employment situations and what's going on with the stipends that they've been receiving that that maybe now they're not going to be receiving. And I think that all these these sort of geopolitical happenings have a very real tangible impact on real estate, but there's just kind of a lag there because people aren't necessarily feeling the pain yet of exactly what's going on with, uh, with the economy. So it'll definitely be interesting to see how it all unfolds. That's for sure. Yeah, totally. Especially, you know, now that we're starting to head into the winter and, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen tomorrow, you know, mm-hmm. definitely. Um, what is your drive and your vision for the long term? You know, long term, the vision ever since I, I mean, even since I read Rich Dad Poor Dad, the vision was always financial and time freedom. You know, mm-hmm. I think that the ability to kind of do things on your own terms is, is, I mean, granted, it's it's kind of cliche, but I think that it means different things to different people, right? So I think that my vision for the long term is to be able to, um, you know, fund the sort of lifestyle that I want to live with the people that I want to live with, um, you know, make a difference in the communities that I'm working in. And, um, you know, really just, I mean, I think I'm, I'm super fortunate in the sense that I'm 25 now, and I pretty much do everything that I want to do on a day-to-day basis. You know, I think that um, you know, being able to work full-time in real estate is what I wanted to do. Um, and, you know, I enjoy the people that I do it with. So I think in a sense, it's like the long-term vision for me is just a more refined and, um, more prosperous version of what I already live. Thankfully. That's huge. Especially, you know, at like the super young age that, that you're at, you know, if you're already like really happy and everything, you know, waking up for, for work in the morning and that's, that's unheard of. Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest thing, man. It's like, you know, I was making great money in my corporate job and there's lots of, I mean, there's millions of people that make great money at, at whatever job they're working. But at the end of the day, it's like, are you really happy? You know what? At first in my construction management job, I, I really enjoyed what it was that I did and I got paid a lot of money to do it. And then, um, <laughs> as I worked there longer, it seemed like even though my salary was increasing, my happiness was definitely decreasing. And I think, um, you know, to a certain extent, it's like, money can solve some very basic problems. Like it can solve the, 
food, housing, you know, the basic essentials of life problem, mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily what's going to bring you a lot of long-term happiness. And I think that having been on both sides of the fence of like, you know, making good money, but hating every part of your life. And then also making almost no money, but really enjoying what you're doing and building a lot of value um, more on like the equity side, as opposed to the, the cash flow side. It's like, um, you know, I know which one that I pick every single time. I'll definitely pick, pick happiness every single time. That's awesome. That's so true. Yeah. I feel like, um, you know, like to your point, you know, that can, there's probably a whole lot of people that are making a ton of money, but like, they're not even close to happy, but yeah. there's also people, you know, like you were saying that aren't making a ton of money at all, you know, but it still fills their lifestyle to where they want it. And they're like the happiest people in the world. And it's kind of like up to everybody to find that medium. Um, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right, man. And, and to that point, I mean, there's a lot of people that are our age that are making great money that are super unhappy. And I think that it's, it almost takes doing something that you really love to understand how much you disliked what you're doing previously. Mm -hmm. I think it's like a contrast thing where it's like, you have to understand what it's like to be really happy with what you do um, in order to understand how, how miserable doing something else can be. And, um, you know, those last couple of months that I was working on my job where I really just wasn't enjoying it, um, you know, getting out of bed and like just doing the basic day-to-day -day tasks felt like it just took an enormous amount of energy, you know? Yeah. And there's definitely nothing that, I mean, you can't put a price on being able to wake up every day and do what you love. You know, you really can't. Oh, hundred percent. And life's way too short to, to have to deal with that kind of thing and like not find what you like. It absolutely is, man. No, you're absolutely right. <laughs> totally. Would you mind telling the story of acquiring your first property and any like lessons that you might've learned from it? Yeah. Um, you know, I think the story of acquiring my first property really begins like when I moved to Boston. So I, I moved to Boston in February, 2018 mm -hmm. and then bought my first property September, 2019. So about a year and a half had went by before I pulled the trigger on that first property. And I think the, the lesson there you know, something that I definitely did right was that I did not buy something right away in a market that I did not understand. Mm -hmm. I went to open house after, I mean, I had the funds and I had the income to get into a property and granted, I could have probably gotten a lot better of a deal than I did because of what happened to the Boston real estate market between February, 2018 and, and September, 2019. Yeah. But um, I didn't pull the trigger right away. And I think a lot of that was fear, but I think also a lot of it was just that um, that fear stemmed from not understanding the market. Like it's hard if you don't know a market, if you don't, I mean, going back to what we were just saying, like, you don't know happiness until you're unhappy. Mm -hmm. You don't know good deals until you've seen bad deals. And so I think True. a lot of like the first houses that I went to the first, you know, seven, eight open houses that I went to in the first 10, 15 showings that I went to with uh, a buyer's agent. I mean, you don't really know what a good deal in a certain market looks like until you've seen what a ton of bad deals look like. And granted, there are some good ones that pass me by. There's still some that like I'm kicking myself for not buying, but I think um, at the end of the day, it all happens for a reason. And um, the way that I got my current property was that I saw it come on the market and I knew that it was a great deal and I jumped on it right away and within three days had it under contract and um, everything with the inspection came back relatively cleanly. Um, you know, basically it's a, a single family, three bedroom house in Malden and it's in a great submarket of Malden. It is relatively close to the public transportation and there's good amenities nearby. Um, and it's a great neighborhood. So I think that at the end of the day, it's, 
house that I knew that I could get some 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 roommates in to help me um, with the mortgage and all that sort of stuff, and also give me like a good experience of being a landlord. And um, you know, since then I've just been operating it for the last year or so. Um, hopefully, looking to do a refinance here pretty soon, just to try and take advantage of the good rates and all that. But um, yeah, I mean, it closed relatively smooth and got got roommates in here pretty smoothly. So. Um, I think part of the reason why it went so smoothly was because my living situation previously was so terrible where basically I was living <laughs> in a, you know, I mean, being financially minded and, and understanding that my goal was ultimately to be a full-time entrepreneur, you know, money and savings is a, a humongous part of that. So I was looking to try and save money, however I, it was that I could. Yeah. And I ended up um, living in a living room basically for about two years where I had these random roommates and um, that situation was just a total disaster. And I mean, I, while I still ended up saving money, I think that that also taught me so much about how to be a landlord because it was the roommates that I was living with were just, they hardly ever paid rent if at all on time, you know, I got threatened with eviction, something like eight or nine times in the course of the year and a half that I lived there. And, um, by the time I moved out, um, these individuals still had not moved out and they completely trashed the place. And oh left with a huge, uh, huge bill to pay, basically for a completely destroyed unit. And um, of course, they weren't going to pay for that. So I had to because I was right about to close my house and couldn't afford to have a, a collection issued against me for not paying for something, even though it, it was not my problem. Um, so I think that part of the reason why it's been so smooth thus far is because I had a bad experience as a tenant um, that taught me how to be a landlord. That's so true. I, I really like, you know, kind of the overall point that like we've had so far, like you don't really know good things until you've seen the bad things. Mm -hmm. That's I'm definitely going to keep that in mind, um, you know, just for the future that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how you learn too, right? It's like you learn from mistakes and you learn from failures. And um, at the end of the day, that's, that's, what's going to be the building block for, I mean, it's just like you were telling me before we started recording this, you know, going to a, a less desirable part of Haverhill, it's like, well, now you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> example, but it's still the same principle. Yeah. I mean, as long as you're experiencing something, then I feel like you're kind of learning to a degree, you know, even if it's like a bad experience, then, you know, like you said, now, you know, you know, now, you know what you want versus what you don't want. And like, I feel like you're a little yeah. bit further, you know, Absolutely, man. even though, you know, sometimes you might have to sacrifice kind of like what you did and you had to kind of clean up after your roommates and, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, take care of that, but that's yeah, totally. Wow. <laughs> um, so this one works for either like you as an investor or for development AI, uh, you could kind of, you know, if you wanted to like give both, you know, if you, you know, however you want to answer is like totally cool. Okay. Uh, what do you consider to be the biggest variable to expand your portfolio, like as an investor or like your clientele? Yeah, your company, <laughs> man, I think, um, I think the answer to both of them is just there's not enough hours in the day. Um, <laughs> you know, obviously, running a running a company with with one of your friends, it's especially a tech company where we're trying to scale out our services. I mean, we work pretty ridiculous hours and um, definitely doesn't lend well to doing other things with your life. But I think going back to the, the earlier point, it's like, you know, we're happy doing it. So it's, it's definitely no skin off of our back. But, um, you know, certainly if we had four or five additional engineers and four or five additional salespeople, we'd be able to grow our team a lot faster. But um, there's trade-offs that come with that and, and other implications that come with that. Um, 
as far as the investing side, I mean, other than time, I mean, capital would obviously be helpful, but I think also it's, it's, I, I don't necessarily know if I would even really buy anything right now. I would be super cautious about buying something just because of the risk profile. You know, I think that, um, there's still people that are, I mean, we saw people that were overpaying for multifamily, which the asset class that I would invest in, if I were able in a position or, um, you know, a, uh, um, you know, point in my life where investing in real estate made a lot more sense than it does right now. Yeah. Um, I would be looking multifamily and what I was seeing with multifamily before I, I went full-time in development AI was that people were overpaying and people are still overpaying because it's still being viewed as, as a stable asset class. But I think that it really depends on what class of multifamily you're looking at right now. Um, so I think that my long-winded answer is that, you know, what would, allow me to expand my, my portfolio would be number one, more capital, but number two, um, less risk, like better, better deals. And I think that good deals are, are hard enough to find as it is, let alone deals that reflect the risk presented by what's going on with the coronavirus. That's so true. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Um, you know, to be able to, to keep that, that cash and, you know, that capital and stuff that you have like in the right spot and, you know, like be able to risk a lot less instead of trying to jump on every little thing that comes to you, you know, still being kind of selective and, uh, you know, making that, putting that in like the best use that you can. Yeah. I mean, fundamentally investing is about trying to find asymmetrical risk and reward. Mm -hmm. Um, it's like, there's the example of, I want to say it was Tim Ferriss where like he knew an investor that recognized that like the material that, that nickels were made out of, was all yep. of a sudden worth more than an actual nickel was. And so hmm. the guy bought like $25 million worth of nickels. Like talk about asymmetrical risk reward. It's like, you can't lose by making that bet. But I think that a lot of times we lose sight of the fact that I think a lot of times real estate investors, just as more of like an outsider, because obviously my portfolio is not huge by any means, but mm-hmm. you know, I think from like a real fundamental investing perspective, um, a lot of people just tend to hedge their bets on the fact that the tide is going to keep rising. And we know from 2008 and we know from other economic um, recessions in the past, granted, not every economic recession really touches real estate, yeah. but we know that the tide comes in and out the same way like it does with the ocean. And as such, you know, there's a lot of people that end up getting washed away because they hedge their bets inappropriately and they don't they don't calculate the purchase price based on the, the underlying risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from that perspective, I mean, if you think that the value of your real estate could go up or down, you know, if it has the potential to go down by 20%, then you should reflect that in the price that you're willing to pay. Um, otherwise you're going to pay the price. Totally. That's a really good point. Definitely. Uh, what is the most important lesson that you have learned over your career? I think, you know, there's been so many lessons that I've learned, but it takes me a minute to think about this. The number one is just the importance of the relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in my current role, which is really managing all the sales and business development for development AI, um, you know, especially in the early days, it was leveraging a lot of existing relationships that I had just from like going to meetups and, um, you know, getting to know some of the, the local investors in the Boston market. But 
even beyond that, you know, those relationships, especially with the right people and having them sustained, sustained, excuse me, over, over a significant period of time. And also, you know, doing what it is that you say you're going to do is what lends credibility, which then obviously then people take you seriously. Um, and that's extremely important, especially in, in a realm like sales, where, you know, a lot of times you reach out to these people cold, where these people have no idea who you are, no idea who your company is, yep. you know, from their perspective, why should you get, I mean, you see the same thing too. Like when people just call you out of nowhere, like, why should you give that person the time of day? Yeah. 100%. Our business professionals and, you know, especially developers, they have a lot of things going on and they're risk averse as it is. Why should they take somebody who's calling them seriously? So then what do they do? They, they look back to see. Um, who they know in common with me, whether that's through LinkedIn, which is most often how I'm reaching out to people. Yep. And a lot of times they then reach out to those individuals that are mutually connected with me to see like, who the heck is this guy? And like, should I actually give him the time of day? Mm -hmm. um, so relationships is not only just the transactional of like, who knows who, but it's, it's about showing up and like doing what you say you're going to do. That's something that's so, it sounds so simple, but actually finding people that do it over and over again is, is extremely rare. And I saw that in construction management. I see it in real estate. I see it, um, you know, in the business relationships that we have now. Um, so finding the people that are going to show up and, and do what they say you're going to do. I mean, that's the best way to build relationships and sustain relationships that can be leveraged into better relationships and more relationships down the road. That's so true. I'm just kind of starting to see that you know, relatively recently, you know, how powerful like the relationships actually are. Yeah. And you're totally right. Like a lot of people, you know, may talk a big game, but then they don't actually, you know, follow through on it. And it's so crazy, like how common that is. And, um, you know, you, you're hundred percent, right. Like the amount of people that, that are actually like out there grinding mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, doing what they say they're going to do and, you know, doing all these things is, is really rare. Yeah. It's and crazy. Like that's something that surprised me when I started out in the professional world, you know, mm -hmm. like I thought that was kind of like the baseline expectation was that you'd say what you're, you do what you said you were going to do and yep. you would even just show up on time. And, you know, I was shocked what, I mean, I mostly saw this in construction management when I was starting out where it's like all of a sudden, because I just did what I said I was going to do, um, I became a top performer, you know, and that to me was just shocking. <laughs> um, so I think, uh, I think being able to build a network of people around you that you can depend on. And similarly, you know, there's that high level of, of accountability directed back towards yourself. I mean, I think that's, what's, what is really a key to success. And that's something that's a principle that's going to apply to whatever sort of industry you work in or whatever your specific role within that industry is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I totally agree. Um, this is a big one that I, I came up with relatively recently and I, I can't wait to hear what, you know, your kind of your thoughts on it. Yeah. How do you define wealth? Um, you know, that's, that's a great question and something I've thought about for a long time. And I think, you know, there's a couple different components of that. So the first part is obviously financial and mm -hmm. I think that each sort of component kind of warrants its own own rant on what each of those ones is. So financial wealth means that you have more than enough. It's you have a surplus of money to meet your basic needs now and in the future, meaning that if you stop working today, you have enough in your bank and 
in income producing assets, you would no longer need to work to sustain you and your family for the rest of your life. Um, I don't think that figure is, especially if you're living humbly, I don't think that figure is as, as big as people really think that it is. And I think it's also something that you can calculate. Um, you know, you should be able to understand what your uh, escape velocity is, so to speak, if you want to quit your job or if you want to retire. It's a matter about projecting, you know, a reasonable expenditure of finances over the course of your lifetime. And I think that those are numbers that can be calculated. Um, I think anything in excess of that, you know, whether it's, um, you know, I, I don't think that people need as much money as they think they do in order to be wealthy. The second piece of wealth is your health. And I think that health is something that can be broken down into um, your financial health, which we kind of already discussed, your physical health, and then your, your social health. Um, I think those ones are, are relatively self-explanatory. It's about um, being in, in good health physically, but also having good relationships around you that help you feeling sustained spiritually. But I think wealth also is about having the time freedom to be able to do whatever you want. Yeah. Um, so it's like, it's happiness at the end of the day. At the end of the day, wealth is happiness because um, it's what's going to allow you to do what you want, when you want on your terms and for something that's going to advance the common good. I love that answer. <laughs> Thank you. I love it. There's, there's so many different, uh, like parts to that, you know, and yeah, it's, it's crazy going from, you know, just thinking about wealth in terms of currency and then to see what you can do once you get that currency, you know, be able yeah. to take your time back and, you know, be able to do the things that you want to do. And it, it's, it's freedom. You're right. It's, it's insane. Like just thinking yeah. about it. And, yeah. um, yeah, I, I mean, totally wealth, agree with you. Yeah. Yeah wealth is abundance, you know, whether that's money or, or time or, um, but I think in, in a certain sense too, wealth is also, there's wealth to be found in, in like simplicity, right? Because as I was talking about like wealth being abundance, I immediately thought like, what about abundant possessions? And it's like, I don't think that abundant possessions is really wealth. I think like maybe the ability to purchase abundant possessions is, but I think there's also wealth in simplicity and um, living humbly. You know, when I picture what I would consider wealthy for myself, you know, it's not some crazy sort of exotic lifestyle. It's the potential to to afford that, certainly. But I think it's also just about being able to do with my time what it is that I want to do. You know, whether that's growing businesses, it's a big part of that is being able to spend a lot of time with my future family and my current family, obviously. Yep. Um, it's being able to travel. It's being able to give back a lot, too. You know, I do a lot of work with engineers without borders and um, I'd like to, if I had more time, do more work with them, obviously, but I think also with a lot of other charitable organizations. Um, wealth is is abundance, but it's also fulfillment. It's finding those things that are going to make you happy and get you excited to get out of the bed in the morning. And um, those are things that are hard to find, but they're also pretty simple to find. You know, it, I think that um, you can find a lot of happiness just being really in touch with with yourself and being honest about what it is that you do and don't like to do and being honest about how much money you need or don't need to live that way. Yeah. I love it. That's huge. There's um, I don't know if you've read uh, the million millionaire next door. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. It's so crazy. Like in that book, you know, like people who they picture like traditional people, like that don't really know, you know, too, too much about this kind of thing. And who yeah. they picture when it comes to being rich, you know, the guy with the mansion and the Ferraris yeah. and, you know, this, that, the other. Yeah. But 
it could actually be the guy on the other side, you know, living in the single family and, you know, all of his bills are covered. He's the happiest can be, you know, like yep. not materialistic at all. And it, it's, I, I totally agree with you. I, I love that kind of, um, that's kind of how I picture wealth as well. Yeah. You know, just not having to stress, stress out about things anymore. Like, yeah. I feel like you don't really, I mean, obviously, you know, everybody's different when it comes to exactly. like materialism and everything, but exactly. It's, it doesn't always look, you know, with Rolexes and, you know, all that nonsense. Like, yeah. Yeah. No. And, and that was literally what I was just about to say was that it means different things to different people. You know, I yeah. think that wealth is very subjective. And for some people, their version of wealth is having an abundance of material possessions. And I think that that's totally fine. You know, it's not here to judge or to tell other people how they should live their life. Like, for me, wealth means a certain thing. And for the person next door, it means something else, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, like you said, it's, it ultimately comes down to the individual and what it is that they want with their life. I mean, we only have, we only have one life, right? So it's, yep. you got to find those things that are going to bring you that sort of spiritual wealth and financial wealth is obviously a big piece of that. A hundred percent. So like, I wish like more people kind of like knew about this kind of thing because like seeing it from from the kind of perspective now like yeah i feel like you kind of need to be able to you know make all these assets and everything and yeah. you know regardless of the kind of lifestyle that you want to live like i feel like you just kind of have to do it now and you know if you just kind of have like that one job or whatever and you know just kind of scrape and buy like you know what happens if i don't know like something like this you know what i mean with the corona you know like yeah. this there's things that can come, you know, here, there and everywhere. And, you know, if you only have one leg to stand on, you know, it's, it might be kind of tough, like, you know, like it is yeah. now. Yeah. Or even from the perspective that like someday you have to retire, you know, like yeah. even if you are working for a wage or working a salary job, I mean, you know, being able to scrape by is one thing, but there's going to come a point where you literally can't work, you know, yep. and that, you know, right now we're, we're living longer than ever when, than ever. And mm -hmm. the retirement age is getting pushed farther and farther back. And I mean, who knows how much, how many miles your body has on it before it, it stops working. But, um, you know, just being able to scrape by in the present is not going to solve the problem of not being able to scrape by in the future. So um, it goes back to the, the previous point where it's like, um, if wealth is a state of mind and also a state of finance, I mean, you're not going to be a happy person if you're not able to pay your bills or if you're barely able to pay your bills, you're going to be very stressed. And I think that the reason that my philosophy on money is the way that it is. And my philosophy on happiness is the way that it is because I've experienced a lot of both, you know, I've experienced times where the money has been really good. And then other times where the money has been, you know, not so good. Not so good. Yeah, exactly. Not so good. And like, I yep. felt that stress from both sides. I felt the stress of like worrying about paying my bills and also the stress of not having to worry about paying my bills. Um, but then also recognizing the unhappiness that comes with trying to chase um, an ever increasing salary. You know, mm -hmm. I feel very fortunate that I've been able to experience both. And, um, you know, maybe my answer in five, 10 years from now changes again. I mean, it's life is a very dynamic thing. And I think that, you know, it goes back to our original point where it's like you learn by contrast, yep. <laughs> you know? So uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's, I totally agree with you. Moving on to our next question. What are the most effective resources that have helped you most far on your journey? Again, you know, as like you as an investor yeah. or for development AI, you know, whichever. 
Yeah, I've been a, so that one is an easy one to answer. That one for me has been books. Um, the reason why is because after I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know, I understood that I wanted to be an, a full-time entrepreneur and like wanted to obviously be very successful with that. And the best way for me to do that was to um, increase my knowledge and then also increase my network. Um, and with regards to knowledge specifically, I mean, once I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I mean, I just immediately started ordering books. Yep. Um, if people dig far enough in my Instagram, they can see a picture of my bookshelf that's since grown since um, since I last took that. But, you know, I think in the last, let's see, this has been five or six years now. I mean, in the last five or six years, I've ordered something like probably about 200 books. And I've just been nestled in those things all the time. Mm-hmm. A lot of times reading the same ones over and over and over again, you know, like um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I've read probably three times, 10X Rule, I've read three times. Um, the Bigger Pockets books, I've read all those. I mean, Yep. anything business or real estate, there's a really good chance that I've read it. And at the same time, I mean, that's how I understood enough about real estate um, at a young age to even have somebody like my business partner take me seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even real estate agents take me seriously. It's like just being able to understand that language. And um, I think it was similar, a similar sort of appetite for knowledge when I was working my full-time job where it's like, if I could just get better at my job and get better at business and how to manage difficult conversations with people and how to negotiate all of which I've learned through reading books. Yeah. Um, you know, those were things that were going to drive my salary upwards and help me towards my ultimate goal of being a full-time entrepreneur. So, you know, even when I was living in Colorado, I would wake up at 4 AM seven days a week so that I could read. You know, mm-hmm. this wasn't so that, um, I could do anything else. I mean, I've literally been obsessed with reading for five or six years and have only not read for very brief periods of my life. Um, so that would be my answer is knowledge is, is power, but also, I mean, knowledge times action is results as Jake and Gino like to say, um, the knowledge is useless unless you do something with it. And that's where the yep. network comes in into, into play is that you have to put yourself in positions where you can actually put that knowledge to use, whether that's in some sort of full-time job or in some sort of entrepreneurial capacity. Um, <clears throat> And it's also just the sense that like, there's no I in team and like, you're not going to get to where it is that you want to go alone. So um, there's a lot of people that read nonstop that can't hold a conversation with somebody because yep. they're just so introverted. But I think um, finding that right balance of the two is what's been the so instrumental to whatever level of success that I've attained. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing I love about reading, man, is I feel like that's, you know, like the information is out there like for everybody. And, you know, like the link that we have to technology and to like libraries and, you know, like almost every book that you ever wanted is probably on Amazon. You know, it's a couple clicks away. And, you know, like the information's there. But I feel like, you know, you just have to kind of have the desire to go get it. And like you said, you know, you wanted to learn a lot about that kind of thing for people to take you seriously, and, you know, to really start to like advance your career a little bit. And, um, you know, you took action and, you know, you started reading the books and, you know, and then that led into starting to meet the people and being able to have these, you know, really high level conversations. And it's, you know, it's like starting from like just learning, uh, you know, to meeting the people has led to, you know, some really nice results for you. And yeah. it's, you're totally right. I'd love yeah. reading, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's like my, one of my favorite things to do for sure. Um, and I mean, like you said, I mean, the the information is there for sure, yep. but it's also, you know, hence the reason that my answer was kind of two part, like it's definitely not the end all be all. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's 
I think it's Derek Sievers, who's a, a pretty famous entrepreneur. He said, like, if if information was the answer, we'd all be billionaires with six pack abs. I've heard that. Definitely, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> definitely agree with that to an extent. But I, yeah, I mean, it's it's about how you channel that information, you know. So like, consuming it is is step one, yep. which is the reading part. Um, comprehending it and being able to synthesize it across different books is number two. But then number three is being able to manifest it in real life. Yeah. So taking those principles and then implementing them into action, and it's another one of those things that gets thrown around there so much and it's so like cliche that um you know action um, information is useless and, until you use it and, like it's true for sure it is um Definitely. but you know i think he is like how do you say that and internalize that in a way that it, it actually resonates with people because i don't know if necessarily um the cliche way that it's always described is the, the best way for it to resonate with people but also i think there's just a lot of people that just don't like to read yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna be honest man like pr pretty much up until I read Rich Dad, Poet Dad, you know, like throughout high school, you know, throughout growing up and stuff. Like I, I never liked to read at all. Yeah. But no. yeah, once I picked up Rich Dad, Poet Dad, literally like my head exploded, man. Yeah. And that led to like two other being other, uh, two other books being ordered, which led to another like five. And now I love just, just buying books, reading them, man. Yeah. Like I have a nice big list that, you know, of books that anybody recommends. I'm like, all right, you know, there's a different perspective here, here, over here you know, all right, you know, like hear it all. And then, you know, I like to be able to, you know, pick what resonates with you and, you know, be able to kind of develop your own strategy for doing things. And, yeah, you know, as long as you keep that open mind and be able to kind of absorb all that knowledge. Yeah. It's, it's really crazy, you know, um, kind of how things can turn. Yeah. And I mean, I was the same way, man. I mean, Prior to reading Rich Dad Poor Dad, I didn't really have. I think the key is that like there was no incentive to read. No. You know, it's like I was was getting paid to read. Like it was just reading was definitely much more of a chore than it was something that provided a lot of value once it was completed. Yeah. Um, and I think that you know Rich Dad Poor Dad is what really kind of ignited that spark that changed the way that I viewed reading altogether. And as opposed to reading being a burden, it became something that was um, an asset. Some of that was going into in the definition of, of a rich dad, poor dad, put money into my wallet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, definitely. It's yeah. Uh, it's so crazy too, like how cheap books are for like yeah. the amount of value that's in them. Yeah. And I like, I feel like that's partially for the reason of, you know, if we kind of refer back to that, like three-step process, you know, you just mentioned a couple of minutes ago of yeah. like, first is finding the information and, and reading it. Like second is like, you know, internalizing it and, you know, yes. like really having it make sense. And then third is taking action. Yeah. I feel like, you know, people just kind of do the first part. They might learn it, you know, yep. learn the knowledge, but they never take action. Yeah. So that leaves, you know, those books on the table for the rest of us, you know, that actually like want to take things a step further. Yeah. And, um, you know, even like, you know, and like kind of in a whole nother direction, you know, like being able to kind of like have these conversations with, you know, different people who have done everything that you want to do, like times yeah. 10. Yes. You know, like people who are alive, people who passed away like 100 years ago, like some of the principles are are the same. Agreed. You know, yeah. and like people aren't going to really know about it unless they pick up a book. Yeah. And it's not like books are like thousands of dollars a piece, you know, even though, you yeah. know, like rich dad, poor dad, some of them should be. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Yeah, it's the amount of value in in books is is ridiculous, for, yeah. especially for the price. The ROI of of books is just it's insane. insane. 
Yeah. And the one piece in there that, that I especially love that you mentioned is the fact that, you know, you basically get to step in the mind of someone who might not even be alive anymore. Right. And like the most successful people of all time, you know, um, being able to read a, a biography about Steve Jobs, for instance, I mean, you're getting to step in the mind of someone who was exceptionally brilliant to the point of like, he was completely uh, a mad, mad genius. And yeah. <laughs> he's just one example granted, but I mean, even, even in the sense that like, imagine being able to get a, com how difficult it would be to get a conversation with someone that was that caliber of success yep. who's living you know, that's really what, what books can provide is, is the ability to step inside of the mind of someone who, like you said, is just exceptionally successful, 10x, 100x, 1000x, where you want to be now, and being able to extract those principles out there, sort of like the step number two, being able to extract what it is that helped them get to where they were at. Um, and then step three is implementing that into your own life, and then living that sort of archetype. Mm -hmm. It's, it's so crazy. Yeah. And even like, I feel like a lot of people, you know, when they're starting something new, like whether it be investing or, you know, something like a hobby in like a whole nother direction that like a lot of people stress out about finding a mentor to kind of like show them yeah. the ropes. And I feel like one thing that a lot of people don't really consider is you can have a lot of mentors that are authors, you know, like, like you yeah. just said, you know, it's like stepping into the mind of, of these people that have done it. And, yeah. you know, like if they tell you, like tips and stuff that they've used, you know, to, to build their career, build their business, you know, build their real estate empire, then like the information doesn't change. Agreed. And it's, it's a hundred percent, you know, like they are your mentor and they're having a conversation with you and you yeah. know, it's the same thing. It's just on paper instead of coming from words. Yeah. And you can also access them anytime you want, as long as you have the book. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> And not to mention, you know, all the information that's online, like YouTube University, man, you know, like, yeah. no kidding, pretty much all the information that you could ever want is is at our fingertips. Yeah. And I think and, even with regards to mentors too, you know, I think that if you try hard enough and long enough on your own, that eventually you'll be able to attract the right mentor. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think you know, to your point, it's like everybody's looking for somebody to teach them something or give them something, but it's like, try to help yourself first. Yeah. It's almost like in school when they say, ask three before me, it's like, read three books before you ask somebody about it. Yep. Yeah. And like, I feel like that kind of goes into like, a, you know, I feel like a lot of people just kind of ask rather than give, Yeah. you know, expecting that somebody's just going to show them the ropes from day one and they won't have to do yeah. any homework and you know, at least with books and, and the knowledge and stuff like that, like that's almost a hundred percent in your control, like yeah. how much you learn, how much you consume. And it's, I feel like there are a lot more things that are like in your control as in like an entrepreneur or an investor or whatever, than people think there are. Like, I feel like there's always kind of something to do like to better yourself. There absolutely is. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. Um, Ooh, what is something that you thought about business networking or wealth creation that changed as you went along? Um, it was def the, the one thing is definitely how I viewed cash flow versus equity and appreciation. 
um, in the sense, and I think of the same as, so from a real estate perspective, obviously you have cash flow, right? Which is the excess of rent above all your other expenses. Yep. Um, then you also have equity, right? Which is like how much of the house you actually own. And the piece of that that comes into play also is appreciation, right? So like as the underlying value of the property increases, then so does your equity in the house. Mm -hmm. um, similar thing in business, right? Like you have a salary and you have equity. Um, if you're working for a large corporation, you probably have just salary and it's probably a really good salary, but you don't have any ownership stake in the business. So as the business gets more valuable, your salary stays the same. Yep. Um, whereas the converse is like, if you have a business that you own, that you have high equity in, but a low salary, your salary stays the same, but you have an incentive to increase the value of the business. Right. Um, so the thing that I didn't really understand until I number one, worked a corporate job for a couple of years. And then also then started my own business with my business partner was that, and um, one of my mentors said this, it's that cash flow helps you quit your job, but equity is what makes you rich. Um, hmm. And so from that perspective, it's like having money coming in is great, but you know, look at what's happened in the real estate market the last 10 or so years. It's like, you could have a property where the cash flow in a, a market, like say, um, I don't know, a Midwest market that's like maybe a 1% property, which just means that the rent is 1% of what the total um, purchase uh, price. Yes, the total value of the property is. Yep. Um, the value of that property, if it remains stagnant, but it had good cash flow, I mean, that's great. But how much money is that really? You know, like using my single family, for example, if I was going to rent the whole place out, maybe it would cash flow four or 500 bucks a month. But in less than a year of, or rather in about a year of owning it, it's appreciated by like 20%, right? So like, I think that we, a lot of times tend to undervalue the importance of equity, which the main drivers of which in real estate in particular are appreciation and also um, loan pay down, mm -hmm. then cash flow, which the main drivers of are the tax advantages and the income. Um, everybody's focused on cash flow. It seems, well, the it seems that a lot of real estate investors are focused, hyper-focused on cash flow and not focused enough on the equity. And with regards to equity, it's like people can make the argument that you don't necessarily control that, but I think that you absolutely can control it. And the best way to control it is by being in a good market and like understanding the, the dynamics of that market and looking at it from the perspective of like, is this a market that's going to appreciate or depreciate in the future? You know, is it becoming more valuable to be in this area than conversely? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that's, and like I said, the same is true from a business perspective. It's not a salary that's going to get you rich because a salary is going to get destroyed by taxes. Yep. It's going to be equity that is going to make you rich. And so um, as such, my focus has shifted a lot more towards how do I, I find assets and um, build businesses around equity as opposed to cash flow. That's really good. I, I like that kind of dynamic a lot. Yeah. That's, um, that's really true. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, oh, so sorry. sorry. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, I mean, it's bigger pockets talked about that all the time too, right? It's like, they always talk about how appreciation should be the cherry on top. And it's like, that's absolutely true. Right. But at the same time, it's like, if my house was cash flow and 500 bucks a month and for a year, then I made $6,000. Right. Yep. But if I bought that house in a great market, like Boston that appreciates 20%, then we're talking like, you know, 80 or a hundred thousand dollars. So in essence, it was 17 times more valuable to get a property in this particular part of town and not do anything than it was to have tenants and you know cash flow that way. So it's like what really drove the wealth? The equity did, not the cash flow.
I like that kind of thinking a lot. To your point, there was um I talked to a guy a, a while ago from Bigger Pockets, and um he was telling me he's like this kind of blew my mind a little bit. Yeah. So we were talking about you know kind of like cash flow in general, and um he was telling me he's like oh you know I only like to own properties for like six or seven years, you know because he's like if you're only making like a couple hundred dollars a month from cash flow, right? So say you make I don't know like. 5,000 bucks a year cash flow yeah. or something, you know, just some random Good. number. Yeah. He's like, you know, that's great. But what happens if you have to replace like the HVAC unit or the roof or something, then mm -hmm. your entire profit from that year is toast. Yeah. But if you're kind of shooting more towards the equity position, then, you know, yeah, you might have to like do the HVAC or, you know, fix the repairs or whatever it may be. But in the long run, you know, hopefully that appreciation is really going to carry you up and you're going to have much more than what you started with. Yeah. You know, and like what's kind of like short term versus long term, I guess you could say, you know, one yeah. of them I feel like could get wiped out, you know, rather quickly, you know, depending on what kind of hand you get. Yeah. But the other one, you know, you'll be able to keep using that equity for other projects and stuff too. Yeah. So I actually, I really like that. I haven't really had that kind of conversation. Yeah. And I think there's a couple key things in there. So number one is, is with regards to like a big capital expenditure like that, you know, going back to our, how we kind of kicked this off with like looking at risk and whatnot, you know, really good investing. You should be accounting for things like that. Like, you know, that your HVAC unit is going to have, you know, what a 10, 15 year useful life. Yeah. So like take that replacement cost, divide it by 10 or 15. So you get the annualized sort of, um, uh, value of that and then divide it by 12 so that way it's factored into your monthly cash flow and you can forecast those sorts of things and have a, an operating account for your rentals that um account it's it's like knowing that you're gonna have to eat lunch on a wednesday afternoon you know it's like you know that at a certain point you're gonna have to replace the roof and replace the siding and yeah um, all those sorts of things so i think it, it comes down to diligent investing but i think the other side of that is um you know the easiest way for your income as a rental operator to get wiped out is like to have people stop paying rent or like have them, you know, leave the unit entirely. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that also goes back to, you know, how do you have risk contingencies in place that allow you to operate efficiently and, um, you know, account for those sort of worst case scenarios. And that also just makes the good times extra good. You know, like if you have things that are going smoothly and you're not having your boilers blow up or you're not <laughs> having your roof blow off or you're not having your tenants leave, then it makes the good times all the better. And I think that um, the third thing I would say is that multifamily investing in particular, one of the, like the reason that I love it so much is because it actually has a great marriage of both cash flow and appreciation where once you get over that five units and the valuation of the property is no longer based on what the market deems its value is, but rather what its income producing potential is, um, that income becomes a lever that you can control. And as you increase it, the overall value of the property expands by whatever that cap rate is, right? Mm -hmm. um, and risk sneaks itself back in here again, because risk or rather a cap rate fundamentally is also about the risk. So areas like Boston, where the market is deemed to be super stable and um, durable and uh, very much um, geared towards appreciation, the cap rates tend to be much lower than they would be in say areas like in the middle of the country. Um, meaning that as you decrease expenses in a lower cap rate market, the value on the back end is, is um, not as high. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's a really interesting perspective. Moving on to our next question. 
what is your best piece of advice to new investors like wanting to start and manage their rental portfolio? Um, typically the advice that I give is, is a talk to everybody, but I, in the case of someone who's just starting out, I don't know if that's necessarily what the best piece of advice that I would give. I mean, the best piece of advice I would give to somebody that's literally just starting out. I mean, Yes, talk to everybody, but I think for this cohort in particular, the best piece of advice is to be more conservative. Mm -hmm. um, I think that real estate, to some extent, has been hijacked by people that are all on the hype train. Yep. And they're just like, you know, go out and buy a property and go out and um, get into real estate. And doesn't matter what the cost is because real estate is just going to keep going up, right? It's like, <laughs> is that true? I hope so. I hope he's going up. Um, but I think also, you know, people that are young need to, and myself included, like I'll give myself this advice too, and hopefully I'll take it. But it's like, as young individuals, we're going to make mistakes. And like people just starting out are going to make a lot of mistakes. So I think it's a question of like, how do you, um, similar to the boiler that you know is going to blow up at some point, like how do you account for the fact that you're going to make mistakes and then make sure that your numbers reflect that. So that way, when you do make those mistakes, which are inevitable, yep. like even lunch on a Wednesday, they're not going to completely wash you away back to sea, you know? So I think that, you know, be conservative, but don't be ultra conservative, like account for the fact that there are going to be things that come up that you know about and don't know about, but um, don't let that stop you from taking action, but, you know, just make sure that you're taking the right action. I like that a lot. I really like, um, you know, kind of like calculating your risk and that kind of thing. Yeah. You're right. You know, those mistakes are going to happen. And you need to make sure, you know, that you're not over leveraged and get completely swept out to see when, when those happen, not if. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. That's, that's really important. I like that a lot. Absolutely. Um, what is a common myth about building a portfolio that you want to debunk? Yeah. So I think since I don't have a portfolio, I'll reframe the question a little bit about, you know, building a business. Mm -hmm. Um, and being an entrepreneur, I think, um, oh my God, there's so many. I think the biggest one with regards to being an entrepreneur is that you're going to have more time and more freedom um, and that you're going to be making a lot of money. Like, <laughs> um, I think that people's perception of what it's like to be an entrepreneur is very, very warped, um, especially when it comes to building a business. I think living off of passive income is, is definitely different. But I think a lot of people would look at what it is that I'm doing, especially people our age, and be like, this is exactly what I want to do. And I think that that's not actually true for a lot of people. I think that it takes a very special type of person and like, you have to, this has to be exactly what you want to do. You know, you have to be willing to devote your entire life and all of your time towards building something valuable. Otherwise, yeah. it's just not going to work. Like, it's hard enough as it is, even if you are giving all your time. Yeah. Um, and I think that also people aren't, the people that talk the most about wanting to be entrepreneurs are the people that are making a lot of money at a corporate job and feel like they're somehow getting shortchanged because they're not making enough. Like I've been there for sure. But what you have to realize as an employee is that you're taking no risk, yeah. you know, like with no ownership, there's no risk. Mm -hmm. So that's the reason why you don't get paid more than, than you do. And that's why, um, you know, you're, I mean, being an entrepreneur is totally different, right? Like your salary is not guaranteed. It's not guaranteed that you're going to be able to pay your bills. It's all on you. And yep. 
that might sound nice and people might think that that is what they want to do, but it really has to be something that you love. So I think that the biggest myth of, about being an entrepreneur is like that somehow you're going to have more freedom and more time and more money. Cause if you hit it absolutely out of the park and then retire, yeah, maybe. But um, the odds are so severely stacked against you that you really have to do a lot of things right and um, be willing to pay a very heavy price as far as your freedom to be able to do that. So it better be something that you love. That's really important. I feel like definitely like you have to love the process of getting Absolutely. there. Yeah. Um, You're you 100% know, right. Not necessarily just shooting for that end goal, you know, having the more time and the more money and, yeah. you know, being that all-star entrepreneur that, you know, everybody kind of thinks of. You know, and you're right. There, there totally is, you know, little to no risk when it comes to being an employee. Yeah. Because, I mean, as long as you do your job, you're going to get paid. You know, right. like you said, you know, there's no risk on you. You know, it's um, like you most of the time, like people don't really have to make like decisions too too much, like big decisions or anything or like things. Things yeah. just don't really fall on you. But yeah. once you start to actually like build something that's under you then you're the one who's held liable and there's nobody else that you can blame. And, um, yep. you know, I yep. feel like you're totally right. You know, when it comes to like the risk versus reward with that kind of thing. And, um, yeah, like just, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, like if you are a six figure salaried employee at a Fortune 500 company, I mean, you're going to get paid, for the most part, you're going to get paid regardless of whether the company posts a loss this quarter or like they don't grow the next quarter. Yep. Um, and I think that's where there's kind of a dichotomy there too, because like um, salaries are something viewed as super safe and super sustainable and predictable. But at the same time, like there's risk to taking a salary as well. Mm -hmm. And that risk is that similar to a tenant not paying, all of a sudden your employer decides that they're going to take your job away. Yep. Um, so, I mean, nothing you, regardless of what your income stream is, it's not going to be without risk, but I think it's a matter of like picking your poison. Mm -hmm. Like certainly being an entrepreneur is more risk than taking on a salary role. But um, at the end of the day, it's like uh, an investor in Somerville once told me, it's like, it's, it comes down to how well you sleep at night. Um, and I think that's kind of all that there is to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's, that's really true. Yeah. You know, kind of like the way that I look at it too, is like, I feel like, you know, like if people are like, want to change things up a little bit, I mean, like there are always going to be jobs out there to be an employee. Yeah. So like, why not shoot your shot once in a while and try and do something on your own? Cause I mean, what's the worst that happens? Like you lose some money and then like, you have to go be an employee again. Yeah. Like, you know, like you could say you tried and, you know, if you, if you like it, then you're going to keep pushing and get through those mistakes and start having less mistakes. And, you know, the sky's the limit. You never know. But yeah. I feel like that, that W2 is always, you know, kind of there, um, yeah. you know, to be able to pay the bills and stuff if things don't work out. No, you're absolutely right. Um, and that's, I mean, the way that I viewed leaving my job was very similar to how I viewed moving to Denver when I graduated from uh, college in New Jersey. It's like, if I don't like it, I can always come back, you know, and thankfully yep. I, I, you know, how we opened this up was talking about relationships. Like, thankfully I had very good relationships with my former employer and, you know, they told me that the door is always open if I want to come back and, you know, that is an option for sure. 
<laughs> you know, um, <laughs> that's not what I want to do, obviously. Yeah. But if things didn't work out, you know, like you said, having an, an out and being able to know that you tried and that you gave it an honest effort is, um, you know, I think what, what can provide some comfort to some people that are, are looking to, uh, to do it. And I think also, like you said, I mean, what's the worst that can happen, you know, as long as you're, you're managing the risk in such a way that it's, that you're not giving yourself an out, yep. you know, as long as you're approaching it in a way that's smart and sustainable and, and has that sort of exit door that, that, you know, emergency parachute, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. um, can help you feel a little bit more comfortable with the risk that you're taking as an entrepreneur. Yeah, totally. And even like to be able to, like, once you manage that risk, like, you know, as you start to learn more and, you know, you read the books and you start to meet the people and like, I feel like your risk starts to, you know, gradually decrease. Yeah. You know, when you go to start that project, because then there's going to start to be people in your circle that can help you out. And, you know, like I said, like kind of what we were talking about earlier, I mean, like, I feel like there's a lot of stuff that's kind of in your control, even then. I mean, yeah. you know, like even then too, like it's not guaranteed, you know, that like your business is going to work out or whatever, or, you know, yeah. that product is going to sell or, you know, whatever. But, you know, as long as you keep learning and, and keep adapting, you know, to new mindsets and keep learning information, you know, keep meeting the people, then I feel like your chances, you know, kind of go up. And even then again, you know, that W2 is always going to be there if things don't work yeah. out. You'll make yeah. your money back eventually and, you know, be able to live. Yeah. You did before you started, you know, yeah. so like, why not now? Yeah. And adaptability is, is the key word that I think you said in there, because, you know, I don't think it's necessarily less risk as companies get more mature, but it's, it's rather that the risks are different. Um, yeah. And as one example of that, I mean, in my own personal example, like, the challenges that development AI faced when we incorporated on day one were very different from the challenges that we're facing now, or even the challenges that we faced two months ago or so. Mm -hmm. um, and then on like a much larger example, and, and you know, a much larger scale example is look at Airbnb. Like they've been in business for 10 or so years and look at the impact that coronavirus has had on their operating model. You know, I mean, in March, they were saying that their quarterly revenues dropped by like some ridiculous 80 something percent or something. It's like, <laughs> yeah. that's definitely the biggest risk that they've ever faced, you know, and they're, <laughs> they're a company that was planning on IPOing prior to COVID happening. Yeah, but true. The, their CEO, Brian Chesky has just done a, a phenomenally good job of like trying to respond in a way that um, keeps the lights on. And, you know, I read an article in the wall street journal about, how it was exactly that he did that. And it's like, to your point, it proved exactly that he's an adaptable and resilient leader. Um, and, you know, I think that also to your point, the best way to be that sort of adaptive, resilient leader is to be constantly educating yourself and constantly building a good network of trusted advisors, but having enough knowledge in the bank and enough relationship capital that you can also um, stand your ground if there are people in your network or on your board that disagree with what you're trying to do, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's all a balancing act. And I think the best way to balance things is by being as knowledgeable and as, um, you know, networked as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. That's a really good point about Airbnb. I, I totally forgot that they were going to IPO before everything hit yeah. the fan. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, there's, and then look at like the thousands of small businesses that have shut the doors. I mean, it's success is never guaranteed. Um, never. So it's, you always gotta be working. I think it's a uh, Jeff Bezos. He says every day is day one.
hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Even, even now, like it, it's been really interesting to see, you know, kind of like who the players are that have adapted and, you know, kind of the ones that have unfortunately collapsed once, you know, the Corona started to come around and, you know, like, I guess who's kind of like modeling into the new landscape to be able to still, you know, keep the business going. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting to see, you know, yeah. kind of like from a business perspective, um, you know, companies doing like a lot of different things, like different companies making masks and stuff now, mm-hmm. um, you know, to making like cleaning supplies and, you know, that you would have thought would, was totally crazy from doing that before. Mm-hmm. you know and like who's helping each other out and it's it's so crazy like just to see i feel like the adaptability you know like you just said is is a really big kind of trait like in yeah. this in this environment yeah and you know it's it's adaptability in the midst of uncertainty you know and mm-hmm. i think that the job of like a business leader is to anticipate where things are going um yep. And as another example of that, I mean, some of the the competitors in my own landscape, I, I won't really talk about what it is that we're hedging our bets on, but you know, some of the competitors in our landscape are looking at you know things like distressed debt, and like how do we identify these office properties or retail properties that are um, going to be going underwater, and then providing investors with the um, means to identify those and then acquire them. You know, it's it's taking bets on where things are going to go, and then making decisive decisions based on knowledge and based on network that um, have the lowest risk probability of being wrong and the lowest uh, potential damage of being wrong. (laughs) Um, It's kind of like, I mean, all those things blend together. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And Carson, uh, last but not least question. The question was, do you read? But we've talked quite a bit (laughs) about uh, all kinds of different books tonight. But what is your favorite business investing or real estate book that you would recommend to anyone? Yeah. I don't know the answer already. (laughs) Actually, um, it, it used to be rich dad, poor dad until I read this book zero to one by Peter Thiel. Um, Peter Thiel was one of the, I don't even know how to say his last name. If it's Thiel, I guess it's Peter Thiel. His um, he was one of the first investors in Facebook and Hmm. also has, I mean, he was the founder of PayPal Mm -hmm. um, and then does a lot of work in the venture capital space. Now, working with a company called Palantir, which is like, from my understanding, like a cybersecurity firm. But in this book, Zero to One, it's it's a short read. It's maybe about 200 pages, but he talks all about just doing things differently. And this was a book that absolutely changed my life. And I, it's one of those that I've read three times. Um, and the idea of the book is that it's, you can either do things that are zero to one or one to N, which one to N is something like working a corporate job where your salary is increasing like a geometric one to 2% every year, um, as opposed to zero to one, which is more of a quantum leap, building something new that's never been done before, Mm -hmm. um, and taking that from one to N. And in that book, he just talks all about how the conventional wisdom is usually where there's opportunity for um, dramatic improvement because the conventional wisdom is wrong. So the whole book centers on this notion of like, what is your contrarian truth? Meaning, what do you believe to be true that almost nobody else believes to be true? And without directly saying as much, his contrarian truth seems to be that there's still great businesses out there to be started if you're looking closely enough and and trying to find these secrets. And um, a lot of times when I show people the development AI platform, their response is like, 
I've never seen anything like this before that, you know, there's some like, how come nobody has done this before? And it's like, there's a lot of inefficiencies in our world that we don't even realize because we're so tethered in and tuned in and plugged into what's going on in the day to day. And that's things like social media and like um, mainstream media and, um, you know, the, so to speak, convention. And it's like, we were talking about real estate, the hype train as well. Like do things that are different was the message of that book. And, um, you know, the tried and true can be learned from, hence like the value of reading and whatnot, but it's like, you should always be trying to understand where it is that other people are missing the mark and where there's opportunity for improvements or even just dramatically improvements. Um, so that book has just totally changed the way that I, I viewed everything in life. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's now my favorite because it did to me, it's doing to me what Rich Dad Poor Dad did to me when I was 19, which was flip the world that I thought I knew on its head and let me start over. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check that book out. That's going on the list. <laughs> that sounds like a really good one. Yeah, it's phenomenal. And I mean, along the same theme of his book, there's no book out there that's been written like that before. <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> he hit the nail right on the head, huh? He did. He absolutely did. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely going to write that one down. I'll, I'll be scooping that one. Yeah. That's that sounds like it could really make an impact. It certainly can. Yeah. All right, Carson. Thank you so much for coming on here, man. I, I was really excited to have you on. <laughs> Thanks, Carl. I was really excited to be on and, um, you know, really appreciate you uh, having me on. Oh, thank you, man. I, I can't wait to see, you know, what you're doing, you know, what development AI is doing, you know, just to like watch you guys grow and everything and, you know, keep scooping things up. And it's, it's awesome, man. That's, Likewise, that's so great. Man. Likewise, I'm looking forward to seeing you're definitely on on a great path. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing even where you are just one year from now, I think it's going to be um, a lot better, you know, and I think that you're just going to keep getting better and you have the right mindset. So just keep doubling down on it, man. You'll get there. I appreciate that a lot, man. Of course, brother. All right, Carson, where um, where on social media can people reach you? What can people yeah. get to you? Yeah. So I'm, I mean, I'm on the major social media platforms, probably the best ones are Instagram and LinkedIn. Yep. Um, so on Instagram, it's just Carson underscore Hess. And then on LinkedIn, it's obviously just my name. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are, those, those are the best. Perfect, man. Thank you so much again for, for coming on here, man. It, it means a lot. It does. <laughs> Thanks Kyle. All right, guys, that concludes our creating wealth podcast episode for today. I want to thank every single person that has listened this far. It really means a lot to know that people can learn from me and with me as we build wealth together. Hopefully you can take home at least one thing from this podcast that will improve your life just a little bit. If you could, please check me out on social. That's at Kyle Curtin Real Estate on Instagram, Facebook, and I'm on Bigger Pockets. Until next time, let's build together.